Hello and welcome to another episode of Impolite Company. I'm your host, Scott Wingeter. We'd like to thank the Dockline Studios once again for hosting us. Uh, today I have a very special guest, uh, John Hayfley, who is the uh, owner of the law office of uh, John Hayfley. He practices criminal defense law, probate and estate planning, as well as family law and general litigation. John is also a Brigadier General for the United States Army Reserve and an Iraq War Vet. He also has experience uh, as a police officer from Collinsville, Illinois, in Huntsville, Texas, uh, and he served as an assistant district attorney in Walker County, uh, Texas, from 2010 to 2012 as a chief prosecutor in criminal defense trials. John is currently a candidate for uh, the Republican primary uh, coming up this March, uh, and he's running for uh, county court at law position number one for Montgomery County. John, welcome. Thanks hey, for showing up. Hey, yeah, thanks for having me. I do appreciate it. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's our pleasure. Yeah, and this place is beautiful. So well, yeah, I, I enjoy the walls and the the old uh, bleachers that brings back memories. Yeah. So uh, just so everyone knows, uh, all the walls that you see behind us is reclaimed wood from uh, old bleachers that they pulled down from uh, public schools, and uh, we got the wood um, for for a song. So it's awesome. Um, well. Thank you again for showing up and uh, agreeing to do the show. We really appreciate having you. Uh, I'd like to open up uh, and just uh, sort of get to know who you are, what your background is, your education, um, and uh, why uh, it is that you feel called to run for this office. Yeah, and I appreciate that. It is a calling. So background. So like I said, John Hayfley, I'm running for judge, county court at law number one. So an important thing tidbit of information, county court at law number one is a county-wide position. So it's not just a district or a precinct. If you live in Montgomery County and you're a Republican, you're voting in the primary, you'll see my name on the ballot. County court at law number one handles criminal misdemeanor cases. Now, it's a court of general jurisdiction. You might hear that in places, but the judges uh, in in Montgomery County have decided that this ca- this court will handle criminal cases and criminal mm-hmm. cases only, and those are going to be misdemeanors. So a misdemeanor is a case... Range of punishment for misdemeanor A is up to a year in jail, $4,000 fine or both. Misdemeanor B, $2,000 fine, six months in jail or both. There's some anomalies, but those are generally what this court will will handle. Mm-hmm. So a little bit about my background. So I'm a Midwest kid, born in St. Louis, born and raised in the Midwest, and uh, moved, to, moved to the Texas-Houston area back in 1998. Uh, I was married to my wife who was born and raised in Conroe, Conroe graduate. So got her back home as quickly as I could, as as I promised that I would. At the time, I was a police officer. So when I graduated from college, I went off. Let me start back before that. So I was sitting in my fraternity house watching Desert Shield, Desert Storm as it started. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, that is something that's an organization that I'd like to be a part of. You know, never really thought about being in the army until that occurred. So shortly after that, I enlisted in the Missouri national guard Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then went through the ROTC program at the school that I was going to. What was your original MOS? So 31 series back then it was 95. It's MPs. Okay. So it was an MP. So it was a 95 Bravo back then. Now it's a 31 Bravo. And then, when you get commissioned, it turns into an alpha. So Mm -hmm. 31 alpha is a uh, military police officer. So I went to officer basic course. Um, when I decided to go or when I got, 
graduated, that's mm-hmm. when you go. And that's the timing of it. Right. Uh, President Clinton took over and the right sizing of the army was taking place. So he was going to cut in a number of places. So I made the informed decision to go straight into the reserve. Okay. So I did my officer basic course and then I went in the reserve thinking I'll serve my, my you know, my six year, mm-hmm. uh, what I, what I owe back. And, uh, then I would continue as a police officer. But as the story goes, most of you know what happened about seven years after 1993. Yeah. That time frame, we had uh, 9-11, and that was the decision point that I was going to stay in as a, a lifetime member of the Army, Army Reserve. Mm-hmm. Um, police officer up in Huntsville, Texas. Um, you know, loved my job, loved being a police officer. Was was decorated a couple of times as a police officer, and, uh, you know, I, I really enjoyed the job. One day... I was working as a canine officer, and my son was about nine months old, maybe mm-hmm. a little younger. Came home at five in the morning. He was standing in his crib crying, wanting me to pick him up like I normally did when I got home. Mm-hmm. He heard me, you know. You know, that's what kids do, right? right. Um, before I got home, I was in a foot pursuit, you know, with a bad guy running through the woods, got all cut up, and a little bit of a fight ensued. We... You know, I arrested him. Everything was great. Mm-hmm. Went home, but there was blood all over me and my uniform. And I went to grab my son, and I saw the blood, and I jumped back, and he jumped back because I jumped, and he cried more. And I was, you know, frantically trying to go clean up. And at that point, I thought, "Is this, you know, this? You love this job, mm-hmm. you really do. I loved what I was doing. Love serving the public. But is this what you want to do the rest of your life?" Mm-hmm. Do you want to put your kids through this type of, right? you know, even though it's small scale trauma for him, it's still, yeah. as they get older, they're, every time you get to work, you know, they're going to be, you know, his dad, how's dad going to come home? Yeah. Is he right? So right. made the decision, uh, to go to law school, went to law school the day that I went to visit the first law school that I visited was, uh, university of Houston is where I went to visit it was when 9-11 happened. Oh, man. So I didn't see the whole 9-11 towers falling until 6 o'clock at night. I was just out driving, looking at schools. We heard it on the radio, me and a guy named Ed Johnson. We were both trying to go that same route. And, uh, yeah, so that's my 9-11 story. Just I was out looking for a law school. Got accepted to South Texas, you know, Two days after I got accepted and told my wife and we were starting the plans of what to do, we find mm-hmm. out we're pregnant with our daughter. Oh, man. So we're <laughs> like, oh, you know, life's throwing another curveball, but, you know, you yeah. got to be able to hit the curveball, right? So I just right. just swung. I think I, I think we finally hit it out of the park, right? But right. Uh, went to law school. We had our second kid. After the first semester, I got called up in the Army Reserve, had to go out and do a, a stint, came back. It was a back and forth with the Army. Sure. Finally decided, you know, I'm going to stay in the Army full time in Houston for about three years. I got a position there and uh, went to law school at night. Mm-hmm. And part of my duties was I was a personnel officer, security officer, and a casualty notification officer. Wow. What that means is I was the guy who led the team that knocked on the door to tell someone that they're... Uh, that their loved one's not coming home. So, That's a hard job. Yeah, and that was the trade-off. Take the hard jobs mm-hmm. um, and then be able to go to law school at night. So that, that was the duty. Yeah, that's uh, a hard duty, though. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah. And then once I graduated from uh, 
law school, sent to Iraq. <laughs> so that's Where, kind of my army story, right? right. In, a, in a nutshell, that's kind of what happened. Uh, you know, served up in northern Iraq, had 1,200 troops up there. Were you up in Mosul? Mosul was in our area. We were in Tikrit, okay. which was mm-hmm. Spiker. Cobb Spiker was in Tikrit, and our soldiers were spread out all over MND, Multinational Division North. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we fell under 25th Division, and we had soldiers all over northern Iraq. When were you in Iraq? Uh, that was eight, 2008 to 2009. Okay, so you were there right before I deployed to Iraq. I went in 2009 to 2010. And where were you? I was in uh, Baghdad. I was at Camp Liberty. Okay. Um, I yeah. specifically worked out of Camp Cropper. I don't know if you've ever Absolutely know where Cropper is. Yeah. So I, you know, kind of the other side of, you know, what it was that you were doing in the mm-hmm. Army, you know, um, we had MPs, but uh, I worked as an interrogation analyst. So, you know, I got to sit down and have fun conversations with guys from Al Qaeda and right. ask them, well, you know, hey, give me some great intel, guys. Uh, right. <laughs> yeah, and more, you know, all of those jobs were exciting. So we yeah. lost four soldiers, and it's, you know, every every Memorial Day is a little tough, and we, mm-hmm. you know, we we get through it, right? So, yeah. yeah, after Iraq came back, and that's when I started working as an assistant DA, and then uh, the rest, as you might say, is history. So mm-hmm. I opened my own law firm two years later. And here in Conroe, Texas, and uh, been doing full service things at the law office, uh, predominantly criminal, but mm-hmm. we handle everything. My last six trials have been non-criminal trials in a various uh, various parts of the law, CPS, family, those type of things. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your service. Um, yeah. Thank you. Know, you. As one veteran to another, you know, yeah. we we couldn't have done it. You know, I was. I was safe. I was, you know, a fobbit as they as they called us. Uh, but you know, I greatly respect guys like you who were outside the wire doing a hard yeah. job. Thank so you. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you too. Um, one of the things that uh, I would like to discuss with you is uh, getting into the more uh, legal realm. Sure. Is your judicial philosophy? Mm-hmm. What What do you? What makes you tick? What makes you want to be a judge? So the Constitution is my judicial philosophy and mm-hmm. I know that sounds kind of corny and kind of cliche-ish Not but the constitution was written for a reason and that was to protect individuals from the government yes. not the other way around it didn't give powers to the government it, it protected the people so the constitution is there as a protection you don't interpret the Constitution, you follow it. Mm-hmm. So often people ask me, well, how are you going to interpret I'm not. I'm going to follow the constitution of the state of Texas and the U.S. Constitution. Right. Multiple amendments understand all that and then it's been it's been kind of sh- put through the shredder in the 60s and 70s mm-hmm. and then now we got to kind of piece it back together and slowly we have and uh, i think the courts are going in the right direction in my humble opinion and sure yeah i think just follow follow the constitution and uh it's you know. it's a big fancy word and uh you know and I, I i try to pick this up and, and display this for my students in the social studies classroom you know um it's negative law that, mm-hmm. That's the best way to describe what the Constitution is, you know, and it's not negative as like, oh, it's a bad law. No, it's negative in that we're talking about power, right? Mm-hmm. We have the enumerated powers in the Constitution, and what negative law does is it negates the, uh, the, the, the ability and the power of the federal government to do, uh, you know, whatever it is that we're talking about. The, right. the First Amendment's a great example of this, um, you know. Congress shall make no law. Well, full stop right there. Wait, right. What's Congress's number one job in existence is to make law. 
but Congress shall make no law about these five things, religion, right to assembly, freedom of the press, etc. And, you know, that is a, a great thing for me to hear you say, because that at its core is what the Constitution really is about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And people often say, well, the Second Amendment gives you the right to bear arms. No. The Second Amendment says the government can't infringe on that right. That's so right. Don't, so when people say, are you a Second Amendment? Well, well, of course I am. I, I agree with all the amendments and yeah. fight for them and follow them. Uh, but, yeah, it's perfect the way you placed it. You know, our, our, our founding fathers probably never imagined that, you know, I have to tell citizens they can have a gun. Right. Right. That that never crossed their mind. What they actually said is we have to tell the government that you can't take our guns. Well, I would I would point anybody who would, you know, challenge that interpretation. Sure. Uh, with this fact, April 19th, 1775, you know, General Gage sent a bunch of British redcoats out to Lexington and Concord to do what? Get the guns. That's right. Yeah. That is the moment that sparked the American Revolution. That's, That's right. what it was really all about. And gun ownership, as an example, is a natural right. Absolutely. You know? Yeah, and you can see that in all my writings yeah. of all these. We have to turn in what's your philosophy on different things, mm-hmm. different different packs and organizations are kind of asking us, and that's, that's it. It's a natural law. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's something that uh, most Americans don't understand anymore. Yeah. Um, it it kind of drives me crazy. You know, when I talk about uh, this to, you know, a variety of people, be it a kid in a classroom or an adult on the street, you know, the word right itself, it comes from a Greek word. It's dikaimata, that which is morally just and correct. So it's literally the opposite of wrong. You have a natural right to, you know, property, to uh, freedom of speech, Mm -hmm. to follow your own conscience when it comes to religious uh, views. And... You have a right to defend those things implicitly yep. because they're your right. Um, and so it follows quite naturally that if you believe in all these other rights, you know, yep. that um, you would have a right to defend those rights. Yeah, life, liberty, and property. Right? Yeah, that's right. Those, those yep. are the three. So. Right out of lock. Yep. Right. Absolutely. Very good. Very good. Um, okay, so let's get back into this concept of justice um, okay. as a judge you, of course, will be in charge of dispensing justice. Um, and uh, what are your thoughts on what exactly justice is? Yeah, that's a great question. So when we have never really dove deep into that, right? But mm-hmm. when you think about justice, what is it? And it is simply that it's fair, it's equitable, it's across the board, it's for everyone, mm-hmm. equal, not equitable, but equal across the board. So each case has a set of rules or laws that has to be followed. Mm-hmm. And a judge, in my role, you know, people often say, well, a judge will just call balls and strikes. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, you know, that's a little baseball cliche also. Yeah. Um, you just got to make sure that justice is being equally served across the board. So there are three parts in the courtroom. You'll have the state in a criminal courtroom, mm-hmm. right? And that's what I focus on because that's what our court is. So sure. you have the state that's handled by the district attorney's office, an elected official. Mm-hmm. You have the defense, which is handled by a, a defense attorney and the client, the defendant. And then you have the judge. So each side has a different take on what they need to do. A defense attorney, their job 
is to zealously represent their client. Yes. The state's job is not to seek prosecution. It's to seek justice. That's right. Right. And my job is to make sure that all parties are protected by the constitution and they're doing the right thing under the constitution. So I think those three trilogies, triads, Mm -hmm. whatever term we want to use, that's what justice is. As long as the state's doing their part, the defendant and the defense attorney are doing their part by representation. And then I'm, as a judge, I'm doing my part to make sure that the Constitution is being followed, not interpreted. And that's, that's justice. That's great. Um, every every episode, I like to try to bring in a, a, a book uh, to discuss and sort of help lead the discussion. Uh, today, I brought with us The Great Ideas, a Syntopicon. And uh, okay. this is volume two of uh, a 52-volume set uh, from 1950. Yeah, 1950s when this was originally published, and it's by Britannica, and it's a part of the Great Books of the Western World set. And what's really super awesome about this book is it's a reference book. Um, throughout the Great Books, uh, picking up Volume Four, we go we start with uh, Homer, the Iliad, the Odyssey, mm-hmm. and it goes all the way through like every course that you could think of that you or every book that you could think of that you take in a Western Civ course right. is in this set, right, all the way to Freud. Um, what's awesome about this book is it, um, has 108 big ideas, um, that are present throughout Western, uh, culture as these books were written, as these great books were written. So, um, and it breaks every single one of them down into subcategories. And then there's a reference section in that, um, that can point you towards, um, where you can find in that whole entire set of Western civilizations writings uh, that specific idea. It's a really neat book. Um, What I have today for us is a quote um, talking about justice. Um, And there's two basic camps throughout Western civilization uh, that justice breaks down to. Uh, The first quote I have here is from Spinoza, who says that everything has by nature as much right as it has power to exist and operate. It follows, therefore, that in a natural state, there is nothing which can be called just or unjust, but only in a civil state. So, in essence, what he's saying is that justice equates to obedience and injustice equates to disobedience. And that's one of the uh, primary definitions that we find throughout history about justice. And I think... Both you and I would disagree with that interpretation of justice. Versus Aristotle, and uh, I have another quote from Augustine here. Aristotle says that man, who is a political animal, incapable of speech, when separated from law and justice, is the worst of animals. And Augustine says that a state without justice is no better than a band of robber thieves. So either justice is antecedent to the state, its constitution, covenants, and laws, or the determination of what is just and unjust is entirely relative to the constitution of a state dependent upon its power and consequent to its laws. That, that first example there is what I view the American constitution is that there's a higher order than just our constitution. Mm -hmm. Um, what is generally looked at as, uh, the laws of nations, the laws of nations is supposed to emulate as close as possible to natural law. And so my question is, 
do you agree that justice is this objective term that it is a part of natural law and that it comes from a higher uh, order? Yes. So, yeah, you have natural law. So that's, you know, our forefathers made it pretty clear that mm-hmm. our, our laws came from our maker, yes. God. And I think there's no there's no historian who actually studied history that could say otherwise. Right. Right. So that's what the forefathers saw is these natural laws that man, as they called it back in, back in the 1770s is that man was created by God and was ordained with these certain laws. Mm -hmm. And we've mentioned them life, liberty and pursuit of happiness and the declaration of independence. Mm -hmm. And you already said it, John Locke, life, liberty and property. So those are natural laws. And as we already talked about the constitution, you know, it protects those laws to the citizens. Right. And we have, you know, over time we have a certain camp of Americans have taken the Constitution and called it, well, it's a living, breathing document that needs to evolve with the times. Mm-hmm. And then there's another camp that I, that I, that's where I put my tent, yeah. is that it's a not, it's written the way it is, and you... I'm an originalist, so you follow the written law, as mm-hmm. it says. You follow the Constitution as written. You don't put your spin on it, because then you get in a slippery slope argument. Mm-hmm. You know, well, I spin it this way, and then you can spin it that way, and then right. suddenly you're making this right to privacy and Roe versus Wade type of argument right. that, hey, no, this is clearly what the Constitution says. Or the it, 14th Amendment for, is the catch-all for what we want done. Absolutely, yeah. right. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not. It just simply isn't right so yeah so i agree with that that interpretation that we we evolve from natural law and you know our our laws are given to us by god and then we have divulged we have adjusted them way too much so this last legislative section with Mm -hmm. with texas we have 660 plus new laws yeah you know I don't think we need new laws Mm -hmm. right we constantly have all these new laws that are being placed on us now the state and under the 10th amendment has these rights mm-hmm. to do that. Absolutely. But that's a lot of new laws for the citizens to follow. That's something that I always try to teach my students as well. You know, everybody focuses on when you get into later amendments, like you said, the 10th amendment. But I think one of the amendments that totally gets overlooked is actually the ninth amendment and how important that amendment is. And, you know, basically ensuring that, you know, this bill of rights that we just created here isn't the end all be all of mm-hmm. what our natural rights as human beings are. Um, and the opposite of negative law, as we discussed pre- uh, previously is positive law. Mm-hmm. And that's what generally we speak of when we, we uh, or think of when we speak about law in general is that, you know, you're going to have a legislative body. They're going to come together. They're going to pass this law. The governor is going to sign it or the executive, whoever that may be, president, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it becomes a law. And, you know, we, I think as Americans, we need to take a closer look at that process because, you know, exactly what you're saying there is every time that you pass a law and put it on the books, uh, you're taking that positive law um, and you're you're essentially stripping away from some, uh, from our, uh, ability to do what we want to do. Like, uh, you know, if 
I wanted to chew uh, a pack of bubble gum right now. I can do that. But mm-hmm. if the Texas legislature makes bubble gum illegal and the governor signs it, then I can't chew gum anymore. I mean, that's maybe a ridiculous, you know, statement, but that's the idea is when they pass a law, they're regulating your liberty. Mm-hmm. So I'm older than you are. Mm-hmm. I think I'm older than everyone in this room, but we had schoolhouse rock. Yes. Right. Uh-huh. And then you had that little guy that rolled up bill. Yeah. You know, he's just a bill. He's sitting there on Capitol Hill and they went through the process on how a bill became a law. Right. Right. And they walked it all through. What was interesting is that at the time I didn't know, but now I do know what law was he trying to pass? He was trying to pass the fact that school buses had to stop at railroads. Uh-huh. And that was the law that he was passing, a federal law saying that that had to happen. So where am I going with this is that, yeah, every time you create a new law, you're forcing citizens to do something. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, we, I just think the legislature needs to remember that, you know, it, even if it's good intention, it's, it's new laws. Right. Right. Yeah. So yeah, that's really deep, man. I can tell you just got your master's in history and I'm very, <laughs> very excited for you. I did. Thank yeah, you so yeah. much. So my master's was not in history. It was strategic studies. So it's a different, of course, history is involved in strategic studies, but huh? it's a, yeah, it's a different animal. So right. you, do you want to talk about that? Cause, uh, yeah, no, no, we could. Yeah. I got my, uh, master's degree in strategic studies, master's it's called masters in strategic studies from the U S army war college mm-hmm. there in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Yeah. Um, same school that most general officers get went to. Mm-hmm. Um, so what it is is Lieutenant senior Lieutenant colonels and colonels go to the war college. Mm-hmm. Not all of them get to go. Right. And, for reservists, it's very few reservists get to go resident. Sure. So I went resident for a year to the Army War College, and it was, uh, yeah, quite the learning experience, quite the uh, history place. You know, of mm-hmm. course, everyone knows about Carlisle and uh, and the history behind what it was that happened there. And yeah, you know, it, it was great. It was a great experience. But what it taught me is to be an e- a leader of an organization, large organizations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the army is one of them. Yes. So that's what it taught me. So how it ties into what I'm doing to become a judge is the county court of law one is an organization, mm-hmm. right? It's not as big as the army, but it's an organization. Sure. You have to, as a judge, you'll be a leader. And I often say out on the campaign trail that leadership matters, yeah. you know? So the army has trusted me to lead every size element that exists. Mm-hmm except for core. I haven't made it that far yet, mm-hmm. but yeah, I have a platoon leader, company commander, battalion commander, brigade commander, now division command. Mm-hmm. And as those things go up, your rank goes up and your, your scope of leadership grows. Right. So yeah. So that's what that master's was in is how to, how to do that and having a law degree first and then going back and getting a master's was a, you know, not exactly the way most people do it, but right. that's the way I did it. Saying, so, yeah, yeah, that's what my master's degree is in. And it was, uh, and I utilize those skills that I learned from the army mm-hmm. every day as a judge. You know, you don't make willy nilly changes, but you also have to be decisive in your actions as a judge. Right. Um, the longer you take to make a decision, the more inefficiencies you're building into the courtroom because mm-hmm. it's the last time you can spend in court or the last time that you're able to move cases. So, you know, you got to learn the law, you got to learn procedures and you got to decisively make those, those, those decisions in the courtroom. 
and it's been a, a rough year two years for uh you know courtrooms all over america mm-hmm. i know with uh you know the covid 19 pandemic i know the right. supreme court uh basically issued something like 45 different orders uh regarding uh the regulation of whether or not you can meet in person and then first it was zero people uh you know in a courtroom and then they locked it back to the state level and now local judges have the uh you know decision making power as to whether or not they want to have in person jury trials. Mm-hmm. Um correct. So if you get elected to uh the the job as a county judge, uh or you know, I'm sorry. So if you get elected to uh the the court, are you going to continue to have in person face to face trials with juries? So I often say this not if, but when I get elected. Yeah. Right. So I'm, I'm always positive thinking, right? mm-hmm. positive mental attitude. So when get when I get elected, yes, we will have trials and we'll have live trials and we have lots of them. Um, you know, the as long as I have the power, I will have trials. Mm-hmm. And I think the people of Montgomery County are going to elect me to make those decisions, not the Supreme Court in Austin to make those decisions. Those mm-hmm. need to be local decisions. Mm-hmm. Cause think about some of those counties out there in, in Texas that may not have had any effect. Yeah. Right? And they had to abide by these rules. So this carte blanche, you know, one size fits, one all. size fits yeah. all everything, mm-hmm. you know, those need to be pushed down to the local level. Right. Um, and that's never where, in, where in article three, does it say that the Supreme court can, you know, dictate to every single court in America, how they're going to do this, this, and this. Yeah. So that's, uh, it was actually the Texas Supreme court that ordered the, the, the courts to do it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, hindsight is what it is. Right. Right. So it's always easier to second guess mm-hmm. and I'm not going to second guess any of the leadership decisions on that topic, especially in this position that I'm running. Sure. I, I certainly can't show any type of endorsement for any candidate because that's the governor's race is up. And of course that's one of the heated debates. Mm-hmm. So not going to comment on that, but my comment is that it needs to be a localized decision. The yeah. voters need to trust who they elect, and if they don't trust them, vote them out. They have that power. Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. The consent of the governed. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. absolutely. And and you know, just how it is. Awesome. Do you think that during this pandemic, the way that it was handled, that a person's right to a speedy trial was put into jeopardy because of the decisions that were made at various levels throughout the, the judiciary. Yeah. I think it's going to show that that is the case. Cause you had, I mean, you had people who were sitting in jail waiting for a trial mm-hmm. and you know, justice delayed is justice lost. So who knows how many of those cases, I, I don't think Pew's going to come in and do a big study on yeah. it, but there are people that are sitting in jail that witnesses were lost. Mm-hmm. Witnesses moved. Witnesses can't be found. Victims can't be found. Victims are lost. Witnesses for both sides have moved on with things. So this, yeah, absolutely, as far as the speedy trial portion goes, mm-hmm. for sure. There is there was a delay in how many trials were set. Right. Yeah, there was a time where, and you can't have a criminal in my opinion. Mm -hmm. You can't have a criminal case via zoom. You know, you have, you know, you have the right to confrontation. So how can you confront, how can a jury see on a zoom camera, you know, the, uh, 
yeah. judge the merits of a witness based on their body language, their mm-hmm. eyes, the way they talk. You know, juries need to be right there to see all that. And I think I think the Court of Criminal Appeals will agree with me on that one, that having a, a Zoom jury trial would not work. And I think all, I'm not going to say all judges, but I think most judges agree with that. Yeah. Um, so that's a very long answer to your short question, but sure. Absolutely. I think, I think we're going to look back in time and we're going to realize that, yeah, uh, speedy trials were missed for some and it, and we were still backlogged. Yeah. Yep. So you have this splendid career of service, you know, uh, United States army, uh, serving as a police officer, uh, working as an assistant DA. Um, and all of that experience, um, I think has made you very well qualified for this position is there anything else that you would like to uh, express to uh, the viewers uh, and the potential voters out there as to why they should vote for John Hafley for uh, County Court at Law Number One? Yeah, you spelled it out well, and I mean, I think it's not to quote the because uh, we're talking about history. I think it's self-evident, mm-hmm. right? So, do you want a judge who has been a police officer, who's been a prosecutor, who's been a defense attorney, who's seen every aspect of the criminal justice system for the mm-hmm. last 25 years. Is that somebody that you want on the court? I think the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. Do you want somebody who has had leadership positions throughout his entire career through the Army and through the police department and has shown that they have proven leadership? I think the answer is, is yes. Do you want someone who's been vetted multiple times? I have a top secret clearance for the mm-hmm. past 15 years. So every five years I have to get vetted by all the three letter acronyms out there. To I remember make sure. those days. <laughs> yeah. It's, and you have to disclose everything. Yeah. Every single thing. Every address you've lived at for the last 20 years. Your financial years. statements, mm-hmm. your bank records, yep. your credit card score, all those things show what kind of character you have that you can't be the enemy can't get a hold of you and, and, and hold something against you, right? Mm-hmm. That's why you top secret information is it's hard to get. Great acronym. Uh, the, um, the, one of the historians who's an expert in uh, espionage history, uh, he uses his mice. That's how you recruit uh, other spies. Money, idealism, compromise, and ego. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's, those are the fields that they look at every right. time you get a top secret clearance. Mm-hmm. And then when you get promoted to general, it goes through so many ringers. I mean, you are vetted by the Department of Army, Department of Defense, the President's Office, the mm-hmm. Senate. I mean, you put through all those ringers. So President Trump nominated you. Like, well, correct? he was the president. So mm-hmm. I, I say that often in 2020, President Trump nominated and the Senate confirmed. And mm-hmm. that's a true statement. Sure. The president has to nominate whoever the president is president nominates every general officer Mm -hmm. so yes so back in 2020 that's when i got it april of 2020 Mm -hmm. right at the beginning of the pandemic oh boy yeah so it's kind of a uh here i am two years later still no ceremony but it's no no i'm just joking it's it it, you know you do what you have to do did generals pin each other on smack each other well well, they're supposed to yeah but yeah no but anyway i think the voters need to understand mm-hmm. what that vetting process means. And it's hard to do in a two minute forum. Sure. Right. It's hard to do when you talk to somebody because the most difficult part about this whole thing, this whole political field is talking about yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I don't like talking about me. I'm not a salesman. 
Mm-hmm. You can tell everywhere I go, I'm not a politician. It's hard to sell yeah. things, especially when you're selling yourself. So that's difficult. So I appreciate these opportunities like this to kind of give the story. So if I didn't think I was the most qualified, not qualified, because let's face it, to be qualified to be for a judge, you have to be an attorney for four years, a U.S. citizen, and live in the county for two years. Right. And have a in good standing with the bar. Right. Not a high threshold. Mm-mm. So if I didn't think I was the most qualified, I wouldn't be sitting here right now. Right. I'd be sitting in my office working as an attorney and, and trying to learn my skills and hone my skills. Mm-hmm. But the background, the experience, the leadership, all of that matters. Right. Yeah, I've often thought about, you know, if I could go back and redo it, you know, if I would pursue something like the law, the law interests me, obviously. Um, um, but, you know, probably not something I'm going to pursue at this point. Uh, and I always had the sticking point was like, what kind of law would I enjoy? And I've, I've thought about criminal defense mm-hmm. and my initial gut reaction was I wouldn't like to do that. You know, here you have these guys that you think probably did this crime or whatever. And, you know. And you have to represent them and like, how do you sleep at night and all that. But then I, I think about back in history, uh, probably the best example of, of this case and why it's so important to have that uh, aspect present in our judicial system is John Adams, who's representing the soldiers after the Boston Massacre. Because every single one of us uh, human beings deserve to have our day in court and deserve to have representation and that's a part of justice. And so, you know, I know criminal defense attorneys, uh, as you probably know, don't have the best reputation in the world, but well, it's so essential. Yeah. So, I, I, you know, and I think that just comes from modern time. I think, you know, I think the OJ trials yeah. kind of set the tone from 95 on, you know, and and they worked hard and they did. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of the tone that everyone modern now has. Yeah. You know, so you're right. It's an essential part of the courtroom and it's an essential part of the system. Mm-hmm. I mean, and your opening said that you probably think there's actual innocence in the courtroom. Mm-hmm. There's sure. actual innocence and without a defense attorney, it'll never be found. Yeah. We don't right? definitely so, don't want to go back to like, you know, being kept in the tower of London and mm-hmm. saying, Hey, will you sign this document? Oh, see treason off with his head. Those were bad days. Right. So a defense attorney is an essential part of the courtroom, as is the prosecution. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember those days as a prosecutor, and again, seeking justice. If you couldn't prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt as a prosecutor, you didn't pursue it. Right. And the same now that I'm after March 2nd, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'll be excited, you know, to, to be the judge elect. And that's, that's what I'm striving for. It was a calling, it's a family decision, it's we prayed about it, you know, we. And this is the absolute best fit for the county mm-hmm. and for and for us. So the Democrats aren't running a, a nope. judicial candidate they're, for that court? They're not. Okay. So not. March 1st, you got it, huh? Well, March 2nd, we'll know, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's exciting. So don't forget, everyone out there, February 14th, early voting starts. That's right. Go out and vote early, in my opinion, because if, if you've made up your mind. But between now and February 14th, you'll have ample opportunity to see all the uh, candidates and all the forms. So 
I always say vote early just because you don't know what's going to happen on March 1st, the day that you vote. You know, what natural disaster, what's going to happen in your life, what's going to happen in your family's life. So anytime you have an opportunity to vote early, I would recommend it. I would hope that I can amend that uh, tip real fast. Vote early. Vote. If you want to do early voting, that's great. Don't miss the opportunity. Uh, And we're actually going to do another uh, show on this. I'm trying to get uh, Brian Christ, the chairman of the Montgomery Republican Party, on so that we can sit down and discuss this process completely. But you also have your precinct caucus uh, on March 1st after the polls close. And that's a great opportunity for anybody out there to get involved. As long as you vote in that primary, whether it's early voting or, you know, on that day, March 1st, show up at the polls where you where you would normally cast your vote at your precinct. And there's a precinct caucus and you'll have an opportunity to get elected as a delegate to the senatorial district caucus, which, you know, we have depending on where you live, Mm -hmm. you're either in senatorial district four now or senatorial district seven. And from there, you you go to the state convention. And from there, you can go to the whole, you know, Republican National Convention. But that's how you drive the whole policy-making process for the uh, Republican Party. So we're going to do a whole show with uh, Chairman Christ on that specifically. But you Fantastic, know, yeah. Yeah, it's important. For sure, for sure. Super important. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, General Hayfley. Uh, we really appreciate it. We wish you all the best of luck uh, yeah, thank in your you, upcoming thank you. election. Yeah. And, well, I appreciate uh, it. We look forward to having you, uh, you know, as our uh, next uh, judge for um, position one. And uh, we'll have to have you back on the show sometime. Huh? Yeah, I'd love it. This is a great place, and I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you very much. Sure. All right. We'd like to thank once again Dockline Studios for hosting us. They do a fantastic job, and their uh, you know hardwood uh, reclaimed wood walls are awesome. Uh, if you have uh, any interest in coming and doing a podcast here yourself, um, we are open to do that. So hit us up, and we'll, we'll see what we can do for you. Thank you guys so much. All right. Thanks. Thanks.